But in the biblical story, really the simplest way to break it down is to break it into four acts, okay? Creation, fall, redemption, and new creation, right? Those are the four acts that we're gonna think about. So act one in the biblical story, creation, God makes everything, everything was good. God made man in his image. He made man male and female. He made man to be in relationship with himself, to fill the earth, to rule it, and to fill the earth with the glory of God. Mankind's job was to make God look great. Act one, creation. Act two, the fall, is where things fall apart. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, reject God's ways. They refuse to listen to his voice. Remember we said yesterday, listening really matters. The biblical problem of sin starts when God's people refuse to listen to him, but instead they listen to the voice of an intruder into the biblical story. They listen to and believe the lies of the serpent, Satan, and because of that, the relationship with God is broken, the relationships with each other are broken, and the relationship with the very created order itself is broken. Sin enters the world, and with it, sickness, suffering, selfishness, and death. Act two. Act three is the longest act with many scenes, redemption. It climaxes in the arrival of Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the perfect image of God. He lives the perfect life and in doing so he succeeds where Adam failed. He always obeyed God perfectly. But he also dies the death that we deserve to die. He is punished on the cross in our place for our sins so that we can be redeemed. Redemption just means to be bought back. What is the price that Jesus pays to buy us back? It's his very life. He buys us back with his blood. And then he rises from the dead in victory over death, proving that his sacrifice was perfect and acceptable. And then the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit to the church so that the church can do what? It's like act one over again. Fill the earth with the glory of God. Act four, we're not there yet. New creation. When God will call time on this world, no one knows when it is, not even the angels, not even the son, only the father. And when that happens, there will be a new heavens and a new earth and those who have repented from their sins and trusted in Jesus will be given new resurrected bodies. We will rule with him in the new creation forever. And all of those who have rejected or ignored Jesus will also live forever, but they will live forever apart from God in the eternal conscious torment of hell. Act four, that's the story of the Bible. And when we come to think about where it is that we live and exist today, we live in between acts three and four, okay? So when Peter writes, the end of all things is near, he is speaking theologically, not so much chronologically. He's not saying that the end of all things is going to happen in the next few years or months. No one knows, not the angels, not the son, only the father. He is speaking theologically. The end of all things is near. The next thing that's going to happen in the biblical story is the end of all things. And with it, the new creation. So we have to understand where we find ourselves in redemptive history. The end of all things that is near. New creation is coming. So what are we to do until then? Whatever we want. Just chill out. Enjoy ourselves. Make as much money as we can. 
No. How we live in this life matters. What we do now echoes in eternity. We are to live with Jesus as our rescuer, but we are also to have him as our ruler. He is our Lord. And so we are to live our lives pleasing and serving him. And in this passage, he gives us four commands as his people, the church, that we are to do as his people. And they're really simple. We're just gonna go through them as they are written for us in the passage. So command number one, the sort of second half of verse seven, it says, be alert or self-controlled and sober-minded so that you may pray, okay? So the first instruction that Peter gives to his church as they seek to live in light of the new creation with the return of Jesus in mind, the first instruction that we're given is to do with prayer. I find that really interesting. The actual command itself is to be self-controlled and to be sober-minded. Those are commands that force us to think about our character as disciples of the Lord Jesus. If we want to be good servants of God, servants who are faithful in prayer, then we must be those who are self-controlled and sober-minded. So we don't have time to get into that in too much detail this morning. But to be self-controlled, first of all, will mean that we have defenses built up against the onslaught of sin in our lives. So Proverbs 25 and verse 28, jot down that reference. It says, like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. We must not leave ourselves defenseless in the Christian life. If we lack self-control, then we leave our hearts as vulnerable as a city would be with broken walls. By the same token then, to be sober-minded here means that we need to think clearly as Christians particularly to think clearly about the Christian faith and what it actually means for us to live for God in the world. One of the things I've been saying this week is that Christian discipleship is deeply embedded in the mind. Thinking about the truth clearly really matters. Knowing what you believe and why you believe it really matters. Culture that we live in is increasingly hostile to and opposed to the teachings of the Christian faith And so we have an obligation to think clearly. Someone in in one of the groups yesterday asked really helpfully about what the term post-Christian means. They heard, I think, Rosaria talking about it a little bit in the big tent. We're living in a moment in history where lots of what we value as a culture is no longer shaped by or primarily influenced by biblical values or Christian ethics. That is essentially what it means to live in a post-Christian culture. We live in a time where how people view and understand the world and their place in it is no longer shaped by the Bible. So whether that's what people believe about God or gods or religion or spirituality 
or what people believe about their money and how to spend it, or what people believe about what, if anything, is wrong with this world, or what people believe about themselves and their purpose for existence in this world, or what people believe about the big moral dilemmas of the day, same-sex marriage, abortion, euthanasia, gender issues. Increasingly, people's values and views on those things are not shaped by the Bible, but by other influences. That's what it means to live in a post-Christian culture. And at the heart of all that is that people just want to be able to interpret the truth for themselves. Say things like, what I believe to be true is what matters most. It doesn't matter if you agree with it or not. You can have your truth, but I want to have mine. That context is a really, really challenging one to live in. And it will mean that you need to be clear-minded in thinking about the Christian faith. I want to say that I think you're probably going to have to think more deeply and more clearly about your Christian faith than your parents or your grandparents did because they still had a bit of a semblance of a Christian culture. You won't. You will need to think really clearly about what you believe and why you believe it. But don't be afraid. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. These are days of brilliant, brilliant opportunity to be a Christian. So don't freak out. These are good days. So we're to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Why? So that we can pray. So we're gonna talk about service in a moment, right? But, But Peter begins our chat about service by forcing us to think about prayer. So let me ask you really simply, are you saying your prayers? Are you saying your prayers? If you're a Christian, and you're involved in your local church, do you participate in the prayer life of your local congregation? There's an enormous need today for fresh enthusiasm for prayer amongst the people of God. And I'm convinced that one of the ways that younger people can encourage and serve older members of our churches is by being involved in and committed to corporate prayer. A man called Oswald Chambers, he was a Scottish Baptist preacher, he once said, prayer does not equip us for the greater work. Prayer itself is the work. Prayer does not equip us for the greater work. Prayer itself is the work. We don't really believe that a lot of the time. We just think we've got to program everything perfectly. Nice lights, cool t-shirts, big things of wood. Prayer is the work. And so let me ask you, would you ever think about going to a church meeting, church prayer meeting? It is the place where you will learn how to pray. It won't always be glamorous. It won't always be mind-blowing. But it will be an opportunity for you to learn from older saints who have faithfully poured their lives out in prayer so that people like you can come to faith and benefit from it. We need to be a generation who are gonna be passionate about and committed to prayer before we begin to think about how we can use the gifts that God has given us. We need to pray. Second command then, next verse, verse eight. Love one another deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. 
So what does it mean to love one another deeply? There's lots that we could say about that, but we need to remember that in the Bible, love is much more and much deeper than just a feeling. Love in the Bible always includes and involves action. So when we think about Jesus, he shows his love for his disciples by laying down his life for them. Biblical love is costly love. It always prefers the needs of others above our own. It always has the benefits of others before our own. To love one another deeply, it's not a passive command. It's not an optional command. There is an expectation that this will involve action. It will cost you to love others deeply. So what does it look like for you to love your brothers and sisters in your church? How can you actually do this? How can you go out of your way to encourage others? How can you love those who are in leadership over you? How can you love the friends that are in your youth group who are maybe a little bit isolated? How can you love the younger junior high kids, the on the edge kids in your youth group? When I think back on my life, one of the things that encouraged me to come to my youth fellowship in my church whenever I was about 12 or 13 was not because I was captivated by the preaching. Remember what I was doing was picking my fantasy league team, right? I wasn't interested really in the preaching or anything like it at that point. But I came because I knew that the people there loved one another and actually they were really interested in me. They cared for me. They chatted to me. They wanted to see me week upon week. They loved me. What will it look like for you to love people in your church, your youth group? I think a big thing for lots of you, it'll mean that you go out of your way to include people. Sometimes we are so exclusive, even as the church. We're no different really from the world in that regard. But to love people deeply, I think, will mean that we include them, even if it costs us, even if it's awkward and hard. And to love people deeply also means that we will say hard things to people from time to time. Not in a harsh way, not in a way to criticize them, but gently and yet firmly for Jesus' sake. I find this really, really difficult. I I hate confrontation. I hate the thought that people might not like me. And so I find loving people deeply by saying hard things, really challenging. But it's kind of an occupational hazard when you work pastoral ministry. To love people deeply means that you have to tell them the truth. There have been times where I've sat down with people and had coffee with them and I have made them cry, right? And I haven't wanted to make them cry and I felt terrible about it. But I believe that I've been telling them the truth about what Jesus says about how they're living their lives. And to love people deeply sometimes means that you need to say hard things, even though it might be costly in terms of your relationship with them. Thankfully, those people that I've made cry have you know, still been my friends. Notice what Peter says why we're to love one another. Because love covers a multitude of sins. It's not that Peter's not taking sin seriously here. He is. He spent a lot of his time in this letter talking about the importance of holiness. But really what he's saying is that we should be patient and gracious and forgiving with one another 
Rather than always seeking to pinpoint the faults in other Christians, we should be looking to find the best in people. What should it feel like? What should it feel like to be part of your youth group, to be part of your church? It should feel like green pastures and still waters for people. Psalm 23. It should be the kind of environment where people feel really safe, where people aren't embarrassed or put under pressure, where people are free to open up, where people know that Jesus is present, like we were saying last night, not to scold them, but to transform them. That's what it means to love people deeply. So here's, here's an equation. I know your leaders have been freaking out about equations this week, right? But here's a, a different equation to think about. Here's what it should, should feel like. Here's what people need, okay? Gospel plus safety plus time. Lots of gospel, lots of exposure to the happy news of the gospel from the whole Bible. Lots of safety, non-accusing, sympathetic, understanding environments where people are free to be their true selves, to explore the deep issues of the heart and the deep issues of the faith in a non-threatening way. Lots of gospel, but lots of safety. And then finally, lots of time. Lots of time to rethink their lives because the truth is we're all really complex and we're all really messed up. And if you know yourself at all, you know that change isn't easy. Gospel plus safety plus time. That's what it means to love people deeply. Third thing, and we've heard a lot about this from the video already, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The fact that Peter has to include the words without grumbling suggests that actually some of the Christians that he's writing to perhaps were grumbling about having to be hospitable. The question for us to think about is what does it look like for us to show hospitality to one another today? If you've been in the, the main tent in the evenings this week, I hope you have been. Um, if you've been to hear Rosaria Butterfield at any stage, then you will know that um, biblical hospitality is not entertainment. It's about meeting and welcoming and serving and witnessing to the stranger It's not just impressing the people that you like with all of your nice stuff and your good cooking and your cool house. Biblical hospitality is about availability and service, intentionality and relationship. And just like real biblical love, real biblical hospitality is costly and it involves action. One of the reasons why we find hospitality so difficult and challenging is because it pokes us in the idols, right? And no one likes to be poked in the idols. We love, 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 love our comfort. We love hanging out with the people that we like and the people that are like us. We don't really do awkwardness. We try to avoid awkwardness and the awkward people. But let me tell you, biblical hospitality will mean that we embrace living in the awkward. Why? For Jesus' sake. So what does it look like to be a hospitable teenager today? Most of you don't have your own homes. Most of you probably don't have your own cars. Most of you can't cook anything other than beans on toast. So what does it look like to be hospitable Like we heard in the video, it isn't limited to your home. 
I've jotted down some things that I, I think it looks like, some practical ways that teenagers, I think, can show hospitality. This might raise some eyebrows in your youth group or amongst your friends, but these are simple, simple ways that you can go out of your way to be hospitable to others. When you, you go into your school and you enter into the sixth form center or the common room, wherever it is that you sit, and you know that there's, a, there's that one person or that there's those couple of people who kind of sit on their own and they don't really talk to each other and you don't really talk to anybody else, but they're there and they kind of just exist. You're hospitable when you go and sit with those people and befriend those people and include those people and get to know those people, even at cost to yourself and your own reputation. That's hospitality. Or when you pluck up the courage to go for coffee with the young person in your church who doesn't actually have any other church friends, but you've noticed and you're not just letting them fall through the cracks. You're trying to be proactive in showing hospitality to them. Or when you befriend and help the refugee family that have moved in close to you, when you sit with the Syrian kid on the bus on the way to school, you're being hospitable. Perhaps the simplest way for most of you is when you listen to people and give them space to talk about their problems with you. There's a man called Henry Nguyen who was a Dutch priest who lived the last 10 years of his life in community with people who had profound disabilities. He said the highest form of hospitality is listening. Listening not to change people but offering them space where change can take sometimes one of the most powerful and hospitable things that we can do for other people is to listen to them even when it disrupts our schedules even when it messes up our own priorities even when it plays havoc with our reputations Rosaria said at one point during the week hospitality is taking the hand of the stranger and putting it into the hand of the saviour I love that picture. You don't need to have a home to do that. There are lots of strangers in your school and the Savior wants to meet them. But like she said, it's not just gonna drop out of the sky. He is going to use you. So imagine, right? Imagine if in your classes at school or university, the places where you work at the weekend, the people with whom you play sport, imagine if the reputation that you had in those places was as someone who was radically hospitable. Imagine if you had the reputation of being someone who always had time for others, someone who would always listen, someone who would always be kind and encouraging, someone who would always be inclusive. That's what Jesus looks like and smells like to real ordinary people. We're gonna be thinking about evangelism tomorrow and the dynamics of being on mission and sharing our faith with others. These things go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. People need to know that we care about them and that we love them and that we're interested in them as we share with them the hope that's within us. Last thing, we're almost done. Serve one another as faithful stewards of God's grace. So verse 10 teaches us actually that we have all received gifts and we're told to use these gifts for the benefit of others. We're not all gifted in the same way. I was standing here last night and I was really enjoying singing and I was listening to Caris as she was singing towards the end and I was thinking, oh, I wish I could sing like her. 
I wish I, I know it's a bit weird that I'm a guy and I wish I could sing like a girl. But you know what it's like, right? You, you wish you could sing as well as, as she could sing. But I can't. No one wants me to be up there singing, right? But she has been gifted in a way to lead us and build us up and encourage us, right? And all of you have been gifted in different ways by the Lord Jesus so that all of us can be built up and encouraged and used by him for his glory. I've been gifted in ways that she hasn't. She's been gifted in ways that I'm not. Some of you have been gifted in ways that neither of us have. And that's really, really important. The picture that Paul uses elsewhere is one body, many parts. And we all need each other in order to function in the way that God has designed us. So one body, many parts. You can't see with your ears. You can't smell with your knees. You can't taste with your feet. You need each part of the body to be doing its particular job in order for the body to function, function properly. We've all been gifted. We're all to serve for the benefit of one another and the glory of the Lord Jesus. Last thing, just an illustration to help us think about this. In, in 2008, um, Michael Phelps, swimmer, was bidding for an unprecedented eighth gold medal. I remember this, I remember watching this. The race he was swimming in was the, the 400 meter freestyle relay and the, the US team in the previous two Olympic games had won the silver medal in this race. They'd come second both times. And in the race, um, the French team were the favorites and there was a man called Alan Bernard. He was the world's best freestyle swimmer at the time. And as he dived into the pool on the last leg, he had a 0.6 second lead. And Phelps had swam the first leg for the US team. So the, the last leg was being swam by a man called Jason Lezak. He was widely regarded as a relay specialist, but no one regarded him to be as in the same league as Phelps or Alan Bernard. And when he entered the pool, no one gave him a chance of catching the French swimmer in front of him. But with five meters left in the race, you can watch it on YouTube, it is so dramatic, right? Five meters left in the race, they are neck and neck. It's a dead heat. And sensationally, Lezak touches the wall like split second just before Alan Bernard. The USA win the gold medal. Jason Lezak set a record for the fastest final 100 meters of all time. The US team smashed the world record Phelps had his unprecedented, historic eighth gold medal. And you know what happened? As soon as, as soon as he touched the wall, where does the camera go? Camera spins right down to the other end of the pool. And it's looking at Michael Phelps. And Michael Phelps is celebrating with all of his teammates. In the church, there are way, 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 way more Jason Lezaks than there are Michael Phelpses, right? For most of us, our job is to get stuck in, do the best that we can, serve diligently and faithfully in the place and with the people that God has us so that Jesus might be glorified. It's not all about you. It's really not. It's about Jesus and his glory. One body, many parts. We need each other. We're to serve together for the glory and fame of Jesus. 
So you've got to figure out, you've got to figure out where it is that you're gifted. You might be gifted musically, you might be gifted in leadership, you might be gifted in preaching, you might be gifted at admin, you might be gifted at drawing alongside people. You've got to try and figure that out. My advice on that would be to try and figure out what is it that you're passionate about? What do you think that God has made you good at? And then to talk to older and wiser Christians who will help you ascertain whether or not you've been gifted in the way that you think you are. But the big picture, we're all called to do this. We're all called to be in it together for the benefit of one another and for the fame and glory of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for time this morning in your word, thinking about what it means to be one body and many parts and how we can best serve you and one another. Lord, we are so conscious that you tell us the end of all things is near, that this life is not all that there is, and sometimes we, we live as though that's not really true. We live for the here and now so much. Please, please, please help us not to do that. Help us to realize that we're here for a short time, ultimately, and that what we do with the gifts and talents that you have given us really matters. I pray for each person here that you'll make it clear to them how you've gifted them and how it is that they might serve you in the work of their local church. Help us, Lord, to be humble in our service so that Jesus might be glorified and that many will come to know and trust in him. We pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.